for us at the college. Uh, we're going to have two really significant American novelists reading in our series here. On April 6th, in Gates Common Room, which is in, the, uh, in Palmer Hall on the other side of the campus, we'll have the novelist David Foster Wallace, who's best known for big books like Infinite Jest. And on April 17th, we're going to have one of the most significant new novelists in the United States, Chris Batchelder, who's been teaching here for several years. Um, and Chris's new novel, U.S., has been getting rave reviews all over the place. It was the front page of the Los Angeles Times book review just last week. And uh, you really got to hear Chris Batchelder. Take it from me. I also want to say that um, many of you who uh, came early to this reading tonight were able to get a small keepsake, a hand-printed poem by Philip Levine, um, and this was printed by Chris Forsyth at the press at Colorado College. Um, we're really, really fortunate to have uh, a fine press here, and we're, we've been fortunate for a couple of years now to have a remarkable young man running that press for us. Uh, as it turns out, this is Chris Forsyth's last year to, to run the press at the college, so I'd like you to give him a hand for doing his fine work for us. In a wonderful long poem called Naming, included in his latest collection, Breath, Philip Levine writes, Until he dies, a boy remains a boy. This pentameter line in what might be Levine's most Wordsworthian poem, his immortality ode, reminds me how youthful a poet he has always been how willing to scoff at the pieties of the powerful, how much anger and love underlie his poems of working-class life. But Levine is not a poet who will be remembered for one line in isolation. So let me read you the passage in which this line occurs. Until he dies, a boy remains a boy. In Michigan, he can die five days a week into a rusted brake drum, a tie rod, a broken manifold, a three-beer breakfast, a broth of hydrochloric acid. And once he dies, he's less than nothing, an aura wandering between parked cars. To be alive, nameless, still young, searching for anything. To be outside the Avalon at 2 a.m., when the lights blink off, the kids leave in pairs. To be alone then, hearing only breath, your own breath, rising to answer with words you didn't know you knew, the pale questions of the full moon. To know for the first time, you are you, without a name or number. Come on in. Notice how the sympathy enlarges in that passage I just read. The self almost disappears. There's a toughness at the core of this. The take-no-shit-from-anybody spirit of a scrapper, but one who knows how to love and knows who to love. 
the people who give life and breath to the rest of us, not the bastards who take it away. Breath is a beautiful collection in which the title word becomes a musical theme, a memorial and a celebration of being. The lives of anarchists and workers, musicians and poets, makers and talkers are both remembered and transformed. As philosophers have long reminded us, memory and imagination are the same thing. You can't read Levine as a poet obsessed with his working-class youth in Detroit embroidering the same themes over and over. You have to see him like any artist of the local, Kavafi or Cather or Joyce, transforming that material with assured and deliberate artistry. In the book's opening, he asks himself, what did I bring to the dance? And it's what the artist brings that makes all the difference, especially at a time of personal or national grief, when, as he says, how weightless words are when nothing will do. I don't want to sum up Levine's career by talking about his manual labor until the age of 26, that fertile time for his imaginative life, or his subsequent career as a college teacher, though he has, by all reports, been a great teacher, and he was once the student of great teachers like John Berryman and Ivor Winters. I don't want to dwell on the laurels, the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, National Book Critics Circle Award, etc. In some ways, these are the trappings of a life that Levine's art has always resisted. From the chutzpah of early poems like Animals Are Passing From Our Lives and They Feed They Lion, to the memorials of 1933, a book named for the year of his father's death and his own Dickensian rebirth into the realities of forgotten Americans, to recent collections like What Work Is and The Simple Truth, Levine's voice has been a steady, clarifying reminder of priorities. He pits the unexpected power of poetry against the stultifying powers of the dominant culture. It's a commonplace that the universality of art comes out of the local, and Levine has been called a Detroit-sized poet. He's written beautifully of California and Spain, of course, but he brings to those poems the same breadth of sympathy, the same acknowledgement of being and breath, sustained through more than 20 books of poetry and prose. I should add that Philip Levine was one of the first live poets I ever heard. Back in the 70s, John Simons brought him here to Colorado College, and we read 1933 and had this feisty guy come to our class and talk about poetry. Ever since that time, he's been a reminder to me that poetry does not live only in books, but in human encounters, in voices. This voice is surely one of America's most distinguished. Please join me in welcoming Philip Levine. Dave, that was so eloquent. I mean, I hope some of it's true. 
<laughs> it's wonderful. Wonderful. You know, well, when another poet praises you, you it matters. Or if your mother praises you, you know. <laughs> I remember when I was very a young poet, I must have been about 26 or 7, I was just starting to publish. I was at least 26 or 7. And my mother said to me, someday, Phil, you'll be famous and I'll be your mother. <laughs> and I said, Mom, even if I'm not famous, you'll be my mother. And I could see that was not making her happy. <laughs> that, that wasn't what she wanted. She was quite a woman. You're wonderful. Well, let me, let me read the whole poem that he, that Dave quoted from the, from my, my most recent book, uh, Breath. Uh, it's called Gospel. Goes this, it takes place in the Sierra Nevadas. I mean, you have your mountains here. They're, they're splendid and modest. <laughs> uh, and, and in Fresno, we're, we're not, we're not much farther from the mountains than you are. There's a real difference though. Fresno is at sea level. And, and the mountains rise up, you know, you can go from sea level to 8,000 feet in about 90 minutes. So it, they're extraordinary. And, and in a way, they're a bit terrifying because it, they seem carved out of the hardest earth in the world and, and totally uncompromising. They remind me of me, <laughs> except they're mountainous. I encountered the same landscape in Spain and later in Israel. I mean, the same plant life, the same everything. It was quite extraordinary. So when I lived in Spain, I felt very much at home. Gospel. The new grass rising in the hills, the cows loitering in the morning chill, a dozen or more old browns hidden in the shadows of the cottonwoods beside the stream bed. I go higher to where the road gives up and there's only a faint path strewn with lupin between the mountain oaks. I don't ask myself what I'm looking for. I didn't come for answers to a place like this. I came to walk on the earth, still cold, still silent, still ungiving, I've said to myself. Although it greets me with last year's dead thistles and this year's hard spines. Early blooming wild onions, the curling remains of spider's cloth. What did I bring to the dance? In my back pocket, a crushed letter from a woman I've never met, bearing bad news I can do nothing about. So I wander these woods half sightless, while a west wind picks up in the trees clustered above. The pines make a music like no other, rising and falling like a distant surf at night that calms the darkness before first light. 
Suffing, we call it, from Old English, no less. How weightless words are when nothing will do. You know, as a, as a young writer, I, th- I thought words could do anything. And, and I was arrogant enough. And I think that, I think young writers need that kind of pride or arrogance or whatever you want to call it. Or they would quit. You know, I mean, you sit down, you're, you're reading Keats and Wordsworth or Shakespeare or Chaucer in class. You look at your measly scratchings and you say, oh shit, I can't do this. Uh, you know. So you need a certain amount of, hmm, to think you can do anything. And then, 40 years later, it dawns on you, you can't. But by this time, <laughs> you've done your best. So a little wising up does no harm. Let me read a poem born out of my, quote, industrial years. It's called The Two. Much of what's described in the poem doesn't exist anymore. Even this Grand Boulevard that I mentioned, which is called Grand Boulevard in Detroit, most of the buildings there were torn down to make parking for the Super Bowl. Uh, The Packard was was a very elegant American car out of the uh, 30s, 40s. They didn't make... Cars weren't manufactured during the Second World War, and then when the war ended in uh, 45, uh, there was a 46 Packard, but they they ruined the whole design and started going into competition with the the vulgar cars from General Motors. (laughs) And they got what they deserved. They went out of business. F. Scott Fitzgerald did have a short career in advertising. I quote him accurately. In the first draft of this poem, I quoted him inaccurately. And the poem appeared in a magazine inaccurately. And a a careful reader wised me up. Uh, Wrote me a letter saying, "You you got it slightly wrong. It's called The Two. When he gets off work at Packard, they meet outside a diner on Grand Boulevard. He's tired, a bit depressed, and smelling the exhaustion on his own breath, he kisses her carefully on her left cheek. Early April, and the weather has not decided if this is spring, winter, or what. The two gaze upwards at the sky, which gives nothing away. The low clouds break here and there and let in tiny slices of a pure blue heaven. The day is like us, she thinks. It hasn't decided what to become. The traffic light at Linwood goes from red to green and the trucks start up so that when he says, Would you like to eat? She hears a jumble of words that means nothing though spiced with things she cannot believe, wooden Jew and lucky meat. He's been up late, she thinks. He's tired of the job, perhaps tired of their morning meetings, but then he bows from the waist 
and holds the door open for her to enter the diner, and the thick odor of bacon frying and new potatoes greets them both. In taking heart, she enters to peer through the thick cloud of tobacco smoke to see if their booth is available. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote that there were no second acts in America, but he knew neither this man nor this woman, and no one else liked them, unless he stayed late at the office to test his famous one-liner, quote, we keep you clean in Muscatine, on the woman emptying his wastebasket. Fitzgerald never wrote with someone present, except for this woman in a gray uniform whose comings and goings went unnoticed. Even on those December evenings, she worked late while the snow fell silently on the windowsills and the new fluorescent lights blinked on and off. Get back to the two, you say. Not who ordered poached eggs, who ordered only toast and coffee, who shared the bacon with the other, but what became of the two when this poem ended? Whose arms held whom? Who first said, I love you, and truly meant it? And who misunderstood the words, so longed for and yet still so unexpected, and began suddenly to scream and curse until the waitress asked them both to leave? The Packard plant closed years before I left Detroit. The diner was burned to the ground in 67, two years before my oldest son fled to Sweden to escape the American dream. And the lovers, you ask? I wrote nothing about lovers. Take a look. Clouds, trucks, traffic lights, a diner, work, a wooden shoe, East Moline, poached eggs, the perfume of frying bacon, the chaos of language, the spices of spent breath after eight hours of night work. Can you hear all I feared and never dared to write? Why the two are more real than either you or me? Why I never returned to keep them in my life? How little I now mean to myself or anyone else? What any of this could mean? Where you found the patience to endure these truths and confusions. Well, let me now look for something depressing. <laughs> uh, I, I got it. Don't you, don't you? Let me read some poems I know you haven't read or heard because they, you know, they haven't been out there to be read or heard. Uh, you know, because we are now a nation at war, I've been sort of, you know, a little... I haven't been able to write about this war. My whole life, in a way, you know, it's been a life witnessing from a distance war. Uh, when I was a little kid, when I was seven, the Japanese invaded China. When I was eight, Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. 
When I was nine, the Falange, the fascist party of Spain, along with the army, began the Spanish Civil War to overthrow a Republican government. When I was 11, the Nazis invaded Poland and began World War II. When I was, let's see, 14, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. When I was 22, we went to war in Korea. And I had to cope with that war. And then my sons had to cope with the Vietnam War. And a lot of that, in a way, it's changed my attitude toward my country. Uh, I grew up the child of immigrants who fled war themselves. My father was a deserter from the English Army. Uh, in World War I, he was uh, stationed as a, as a warden in a prison camp in what was then Palestine because he happened to know Arabic, and he deserted. He hated the idea of being a warden. My grandfather fled Russia so as not to serve in the army, the 15-year draft for the Russo-Japanese War. So war has been such a subject with me, and, uh, and it's brought a certain amount of disappointment to, my, to me about my country. I mean, the enemy was the Nazis. The enemy was the Imperial Japanese Army. The enemy was Franco's Falange and his fascist party. The enemy was the Soviet Union under Stalin. And to think that I would grow to an age when I would see, when I would see America resembling Mussolini's Italy more than the America in which I grew up was where we, or Stalin's Soviet Union with our own gulags and prison camps and torture chambers is a real shock. So you see, I've been lecturing you and not, <laughs> not reading poetry. I will get back to poetry, but I care about those things. And it's produced some poems about war, but not about that war, because I can't write about that. The way I can't write about 9-11, which I saw and heard, uh, because I just can't do it. It was too shocking, and I was very happy. I taught that semester in New York, where my, and my students wrote about it. They had more courage. Before the war. This is called Before the War. It is before World War II. Ray Magan is a famous bridgehead that Patton's army forged across the Rhine and at which my cousin died before the war. Seeing his mother coming home, he kneels behind a parked car, one hand over his mouth to still his breathing. She passes, climbs the stairs, and again the street is his. We're in an American city, Toledo, sometime in the last century, Though it could be Buffalo or Flint, the places are the same except for the names. At eight or nine, even at eleven, kids are the same. Without an identity, without a soul, things with bad teeth and bad clothes. We could give them names. We could name the mother Gertrude and give her a small office job typing bills of lading 
eight hours a day, five and a half days a week. We could give her dreams of marriage to the boss, who's already married. But we don't, because she loathes him. It's her son, Saul, she loves. The one still hiding with one knee down on the concrete, drawing the day's last heat. He's got feelings. Young as he is, he can feel heat, cold, pain, just as a dog would. And like a dog, he'll answer to his name. Go ahead, call him. Hey, Solly, Solly boy, come here. He doesn't bark. He doesn't sit. He doesn't beg or extend one paw in a gesture of submission. He accepts his whole name. Even as a kid, he stands and faces us just as 11 years from now he'll stand and face his death, flaming toward him on a bridgehead at Raymogen while Gertrude goes on typing mechanically into the falling winter night. This, this is a bit cheerless, I admit. I'm, I, must, I must switch into something a bit more cheerful. Ah, here, here's a more cheerful poem. Uh, one day I picked up the paper, the newspaper, and it was a special day for me because it was my 50th wedding anniversary. I may be the only... No, I'm not. Richard Wilbur has been married longer than I, and he's a wonderful poet and a wonderful man. And I have no idea how he did it. He has a terrific wife. I, too, have a terrific wife, and that's how I married 50 years. I didn't do too well the first time. Uh, second time, then the third. It was the seventh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is only the second. Uh, I picked up the paper, and there was a, an announcement in the New York Times that they were having a big poetry festival day that day in Santiago, in Chile, because it was the 100th birthday of Pablo Neruda. And I said to my wife, Honey, we got married on the 50th birthday of Pablo Neruda. Well, I had to write a poem. And I did some research and discovered that Pablo Neruda, on his 50th birthday, was in Paris. He was a cultural attaché to the embassy, he had been a cultural attaché to the Spanish embassy in Madrid, but left when the republic fell, actually left before. He was disgusted with what was going to be the new regime, Franco's, and went to France and got the job there. But while in Spain, he had fallen in love with Catalan food, the food of Barcelona. And one of his favorites was a dish that I enjoyed when I lived in Barcelona, called monjetes con butifarra, which really means fava beans with a kind of sausage guaranteed to give you indigestion. Uh, but it tastes marvelously. I didn't know what kind of wine he went for, but I gave him a moulin en vin anyway. 
I was married on the 50th birthday of Pablo Neruda. Neither of us, that is me and Pablo, neither of us knew how crucial a day it would become in the history of poetry. <laughs> he was in a Paris bistro sipping a chilled Moulin Avent with his mistress, waiting for the chef, a Catalan he'd favored since 39, to deliver on the promised mojetes con butifara he'd yearned for all that lean day. While I was in a courthouse in Boone, North Carolina, staring at a poster of three auto wrecks and the one word, think, in blazing red. (laughs) The circuit judge who just asked me, do you plight your troth? Seeing my total befuddlement, save the day. Quote, just say yes, young fellow, and we can all move on to what you've been waiting for. (laughs) That's perhaps the only autobiographical poem I've ever written. Uh, And while I'm reading nutcase poems, let me read another one. I have a strange friend who really can't tell the truth. I mean, if you ask him what time it is, he'll come close, you know. Or or if you ask him, you know, is it raining out, he'll look in the wind, you know, say, yeah. But otherwise, give him an opportunity and you get a lie. Rich and fanciful lies, it's true. And I realize at a certain time, all of his friends put up with him. And it became clear to me that we must be getting something from these tall tales. And that, you know, lying is like any other relationship. It has two partners, one who listens and and the other who just spills his crap out. So I changed his name. His name is not Louis. It's called Louis Lies. Louis lives by lying. He must always lie all day long, and thus he craves fellowship. He lies about the sunrise. Quote, it was golden, a great ball of fire clearing the rooftops, sending the mockingbirds into wild screeches as they scurried deeper into the branches of the Atlas cedar. Actually, the day began slowly as the winter overcast burned off above the treetops. The phone rings. It's Louis. He's found a huge diamond ring buried in his sock drawer. He has no idea how it got there. When I turn it toward the light, it gives off blue and yellow rays like nothing ever seen. Would you like it? He'll be over within the hour. I make coffee, turn on the classical music station to hear Bach's Chacon for the hundredth time. When the bell rings, it's Louis with a copy of the watchtower. His forehead beaded with sweat, his eyes huge, his jeans sagging under the weight of his new belly. Nothing is said about the ring. Instead, he tells me about the women he met on his way over. Quote, 
One was from Prague, raven-haired, pale as a ghost, six feet tall, right out of Poe. The other spoke English, had been brought up to believe she was Hemingway's daughter. She chain-smoked Chesterfields. Both had found God in the Brooklyn yellow pages under perishable items. (laughs) Awake, they cried in chorus. Here he'd thought he was awake. Maybe I'll convert, he says, swirling his coffee. He's tried Orthodox Judaism, Zen, psychoanalysis, downhill racing, organic farming, LSD. He shakes his head, his wild black curls flashing in the noon light, refuses more coffee and rises to leave. He has a lesson. He has a lesson with his Latin teacher, a young refugee from the Vatican who wants to bear his child. The door closes behind him, and the final notes of the box scrape over and over. The record is stuck. The DJ, with the fake Irish accent, is out to lunch or drunk. So I open the New York Times. That's how addicted I am to lies. (laughs) Poets are, are, you know, they love poetry. Magic. It's hot in here. I'm going, I'm going to stash my jacket under here. And it has my return trip to Shangri-La. So. <laughs> Where some Himalayan mountain climbers are waiting to take me to eternity. Uh, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> But these are facts. Uh, The great Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca came to the United States in 1929 ostensibly to study English and learn things about American culture. He didn't do either. He did something much more important. He wrote a great book of poetry. If you ain't got enough shots by now, you ain't ever going to get it. <laughs> so let's call it a day. Uh, uh, he wrote Poet New York, probably the greatest book of poems about New York City. For me, it is, anyway. Uh, and he, he really largely lived with Spanish-speaking Americans. There were plenty of them at Columbia and all around Not as many as there are now, but there were enough. This is called On the Meeting of Garcia Lorca and Hart Crane. We know the two poets met at least once. We don't know if they met more often. Only one meeting is documented because because it is. Uh, but, But Garcia Lorca disappeared from his rooms at Columbia University for a couple of weeks afterwards, so they may have gotten together again. Uh, both men would soon die. In uh, 32, Crane would leap off a ship and drown himself, bound from Mexico to Cuba to New York City. And seven years later, in 36, 
Garcia Lorca, still a very young man. Crane was only, let's see, 34, 33 or 4 when he died. Garcia Lorca was almost 40 uh, when he would be taken out by the fascists and executed uh, after Franco's uprising. But they did spend at least one night together. Crane, by the way, was an alcoholic. And there's a reference to his drinking here. On the meeting of Garcia Lorca and Hart Crane, Brooklyn, 1929. Of course, Crane's been drinking and has no idea who this curious Andalusian is, unable even to speak the language of poetry. The young man who brought them together knows both Spanish and English, but he has a headache from jumping back and forth from one language to another. For a moment's relief, he goes to the window to look down on the East River darkening below as the early night comes on. Something flashes across his sight. A double vision of such horror, he has to slap both his hands across his mouth to keep from screaming. Let's not be frivolous. Let's not pretend the two poets gave each other wisdom or love or even a good time. Let's not invent a dialogue of such eloquence that even the ants in your own house won't forget it. The two greatest poetic geniuses alive meet. And what happens? A vision comes to an ordinary man staring at a filthy river. Have you ever had a vision? Have you ever shaken your head to pieces and jerked back at the image of your young son falling through open space? Not from the stern of a ship bound from Veracruz to New York, but from the roof of the building he works on? Have you risen from bed to pace until dawn to beg a merciless God to take these pictures away? Oh, yes. Let's bless the imagination. It gives us the myths we live by. Let's bless the visionary power of the human, the only animal that's got it. Bless the exact image of your father dead and mine dead. Bless the images that stalk the corners of our sight and will not let go. The young man was my cousin, Arthur Lieberman, then a language student at Columbia who told me all this before he died quietly in his sleep in 1983 in a hotel in Perugia. A good man, Arthur. He survived graduate school. Later came home to Detroit and sold pianos right through the Depression. He loaned my brother a used one to compose his hideous songs on, which Arthur thought were genius. What an imagination Arthur had. You know, I, I never read poems from this book. I don't know why. It's, it's heavy, so I don't carry it with me. <laughs> also, I'm a little, I'm a little, I don't know, upset by it sometimes 
because these are older poems and they're better than what I write now. But they didn't win all the prizes. Because, of course, the judges are idiots. Uh, so why would they have won the prizes? Uh, but there is a, a curious poem in here, which also, in a way, is related to the death of Garcia Lorca. I'm forgetting the names, and you'll forgive me. But Garcia Lorca's death really was the product of a chain of deaths. There, were, there was a housing strike, a building strike, construction workers' strike in Madrid in 1936, in, in July of 1936. And some what are called senoritos in Spain, which means idle rich young men who had an allegiance to the Falange, the fascist party of Spain, they shot and killed some workers at a, work, at a strike site. And a particular officer of the Guardia Asalto, which was a new police force created under the Second Republic with a novel duty to protect people. <laughs> uh, this guy, seeing who they were, pursued them and killed two of them in a gun battle. A week later, he was assassinated. His comrades, in revenge, then assassinated a powerful right-wing journalist. And Garcia Lorca's death is partly due to that. A writer for a writer, they said when they killed him. The Civil War broke out a week after the death that I write about in this poem, which is that lieutenant of the Guardia Assault, a man named Jose del Castillo. And it's called On the Murder of Lieutenant Jose del Castillo by the Falangist Bravo Martinez, July 12, 1936. There were so many poems already for Garcia Lorca. I thought, I'm going to write a poem for this man who's forgotten. When the lieutenant of the Guardia de Asalto heard the automatic go off, he turned and took the second shot just above the sternum. The third tore away the right shoulder of his uniform. The fourth perforated his cheek. As he slid out of his comrade's hole toward the gray cement of the Ramblas, he lost count and knew only that he would not die and that the blue sky smudged with clouds was not heaven. For heaven was nowhere and in his eyes slowly filling with their own light. The pigeons that spotted the cold floor of Barcelona rose as he sank below the waves of silence, crashing on the far shores of his legs, growing faint and watery. His hands opened a last time to receive the benedictions of automobile exhaust and the rain and the rain of soot. His mouth, 
that would never again say, I am afraid, closed on nothing. The old grandfather hawking daisies at his stand pressed a handkerchief, a handkerchief against his lips and turned his eyes away before they held the eyes of a gunman. The shepherd dogs on sale howled in their cages and turned in circles. There is more to be said, but by someone who has suffered and died for his sister, the earth, and his brothers, the beasts, and the trees. The lieutenant can hear it, the prayer that comes on the voices of water today or yesterday from Chicago or Valladolid and hangs like smoke above this street. He won't walk as a man ever again. It's fun to look at this book. These poems aren't half bad. <laughs> oh, let me read. I'm going to read this poem. I, I haven't read it in years. It's about a man who, who was a, an early inspiration to me. I knew him when I was very young. I was about 13 and I worked for a dry cleaners as a delivery guy on a bicycle. And his name, I don't remember his last name. I've sort of made it up. Uh, he was a guy who had been captured by uh, the right-wingers in Spain and tortured and escaped uh, that was before, he was captured actually before the Spanish Civil War. He fought in the Spanish Civil War, but he got out uh, and came to the United States, and I met him. And so my memory of him stayed with me, you know, it's with me now. And as I said, I was 13, so that's what, uh, 65 years ago called to Cipriano. I only remembered his last, his first name, but I, I've given him another last name. To Cipriano in the wind. Where did your words go, Cipriano? Spoken to me 38 years ago in the back of peerless cleaners. Where raised on a little wooden platform, you bowed to the hissing press and under the glaring bulb, the scars across your shoulders Quote, a gift of my country, gleamed like old wood. Dignidad, you said into my boy's wide eyes. Without is no riches. And Ferrente, the dapper Sicilian coat maker, laughed. What could a pants presser know of dignity? That was the winter of 41. It would take my brother off to war where you had come from. It would bring great snowfalls graying in the streets and the news of death racing through the halls of my school. I was growing. Soon I would be your height, and you'd tell me eye to eye, someday the world is ours, someday you will see. And your eyes burned in your fine white face until I thought you would burn. 
That was the winter of 41. Bataan would fall to the Japanese and Sam Bogosian would make the long march with bayonet wounds in both legs. And somehow, in spite of burning acids splashed across his chest and the acids of his own anger rising toward his heart, he would return to us and eat the stale bread of victory. Cipriano, do you remember what followed the worst snow? It rained all night, and in the dawn the streets gleamed, and within a week wild flocks leaped in the open fields. I told you our word for it, spring. And you said, spring, spring, it always come after. Soon the Germans rolled east into Russia, and my cousins died. I walked alone in the warm spring winds of evening and said, Dignity. I said your words, Cipriano, into the winds. I said someday this will all be ours. Come back, Cipriano Mera. Step out of the wind and dressed in the robe of your pain, tell me again that this world will be ours. Enter my dreams or my life, Cipriano. Come back out of the wind. Yeah, some people become your inspiration for the rest of your life, as he was. Whitman, in the introduction to the second edition of uh, Leaves of Grass, gives advice to the American poet, and he says that we, sh- we must go among powerful, uneducated people. Hmm? Well, Cipriano was one like that. And I thought, how can I take his advice seriously? So I got a job teaching at a California state college and went among powerfully uneducated people. (laughs) And I stuck at it. Uh, Let's see if if I can find something a little... I thought that was a cheerful poem, but I I take it you didn't. In one of these books, I have what sort of passes for a love poem. Oh, I do in this book. This book is called Unselected Poems, which is an odd title. Uh, I had, it, it arose out of two events, three. The first was a reading I went to when I was quite young, to hear Dylan Thomas in New York. And I'd heard him in Detroit, and then I went to hear him in New York. And, you know, the first time I saw him, I was shocked because I'd only seen photographs of this guy who looked exactly the way a poet should look. Sort of high cheekbones, gaunt here, a great mop of, of curly blonde hair that seemed to be have its own wind to tousle it constantly, you know. But when he was introduced and walked out on the stage, he looked like a tiny, befuddled W.C. Fields. He was round and drunk and, and red-nosed, and, but, and he gripped the podium for all he was worth and read exquisitely. I mean, he was in complete command of his voice. 
And he said something I never forgot. Uh, he said, it was just sort of offhand remark. I send my poems out in envelope. He spoke in this marvelous voice, you know, very deep, rotund kind of voice. I send my poems out in envelopes, and sometimes checks come back. <laughs> and sometimes the poems come back with their tails between their legs. That's what he said. And I thought, I was about 23 or 4, I thought, Geez, he thinks of those poems as living beings. You know, it's just fabulous. He, and then, maybe 15 years later, my oldest son, who was about 13, turned from, to me at the breakfast table, and he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, Pop, how many poems would you say you have out there working for you? <laughs> and it, that was a stunning remark. Yeah. The working man had become an entrepreneur in his son's eyes. So as my books went out of print, <laughs> uh, my, when, my, when my publisher, Athenaeum, went broke, all my books are vanished. And I didn't have, all my, I had one book from Wesleyan University in print. All the others were out of print. And I thought, I remembered my son's remark. They're not working for me. Then I got a new publisher. And they brought out my selected poems again. And then I thought, well, what about the ones I left out that are pretty good? They're damn good. I've got I've to get them out there working. And so I'm reading from my unselected poems about an event that took place mainly. You'll probably recognize who the woman is in the poem. If not, I'll tell you when the poem is over. Uh, it's called Songs. Dawn coming in over the fields of darkness takes me by surprise. And I look up from my solitary road, pleased not to be alone. The birds now quiring from the orange groves, huddling to the low hills. But sorry that this night has ended, a night in which you spoke of how little love we seem to have known. And all of it going from one of us to the other. You could tell the words took me by surprise, as they often will. And you grew shy and held me away for a while, your eyes enormous in the darkness, almost as large as your hunger to see and be seen over and over. Thirty years ago, I heard a woman sing of the motherless child sometimes she felt like. In a white dress, this black woman with a gardenia in her hair leaned on the piano and stared out into the breathing darkness of unknown men and women needing her songs. There were those among us who cried, those who rejoiced that she was back before us for a time, a time not to be much longer, for the voice was going and the habit slowly becoming all there was of her. And I believe that night she cared for the purity of the songs and not much else. Oh, she still saw the slow gathering of that red dusk that hovered over her cities. And no doubt dawns like this one caught her on, on the road from job to job. 
But the words she'd lived by were drained of mystery, as this sky is now. And there was no more easy living. And she was Miss Brown to no one, and no one was her lover man. The only songs that mattered were wordless, like those rising in confusion from the trees or wind songs that wakened the grass that slept a century, that wakened me to how far we've come. And the, the woman was Billie Holiday, of course. Okay, you've been a wonderful audience laughing at my corny jokes. Uh, so let me close with the title poem of this book, What Work Is. Uh, Fort Highland Park. Highland Park is a little city inside Detroit. If you want to see a full description of it, read the first section of Dante's great work. Uh, uh, it used to be the largest, the second largest Ford assembly plant. It's still there, but it's just a huge warehouse now. Now that the world doesn't need so many Fords, having found Toyotas <laughs> and Subarus and Hondas, what work is. We stand in the rain in a long line waiting at Ford Highland Park for work. You know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is, although you may not do it. Forget you. This is about waiting, shifting from one foot to another, feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair, blurring your vision, until you think you see your own brother ahead of you, maybe ten places. You rub your glasses with your fingers. And of course, it's someone else's brother. Narrower across the shoulders than yours, but with the same sad slouch. The grin that does not hide the stubbornness. The sad refusal to give in to rain. To the hours wasted waiting. To the knowledge that somewhere ahead a man is waiting who will say, No, we're not hiring today for any reason he wants. You love your brother. Now suddenly you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother, who's not beside you or behind or ahead, because he's home, trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac so he can get up before noon to study his German works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most, the worst music ever invented. <laughs> How long has it been since you told him you loved him, held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide, and said those words, and maybe kissed his cheek? You've never done something so simple so obvious, not because you're too young or too dumb, not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man. No, just because 
You don't know what work is. Thank you.